and which shows how little they care about the vows that they made in their marriage ceremony. And even though the marriage is not very binding, most many people do not even want to get married today. They just live together. And those that do marry don't hold the marriage covenant as strongly as they should, and they violate it. So we want to emphasize the importance of marriage in our church. Now, whether you use this form or another form or you do it verbally, it doesn't matter. There has to be a covenant in marriage. I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But when God doesn't command something, we don't command it. And if he doesn't condemn it, we don't condemn. But he has commanded that marriage is a covenant, and I'll show you that. But how it's done, he hasn't told us, so it can be done any number of ways. But I want to put a few more teeth into the marriages that I'm involved with. And so we have a covenant. And you know what? I did not know this until a year and a half ago I had made a covenant like this in a written form for two couples in our church. And recently I went to the internet and did a search on covenant and marriage and found out that there's a whole movement nationwide in order to stem, all, to stem the flood of divorces is to have states come up with a covenant for marriage, and several states have already done it. Louisiana, Arizona, and Arkansas have already done it. They have covenant marriages in place in those states. And the purpose, their stated purpose, is to put God back into marriages in order to try to stem this flood of divorces by showing the importance of the responsibilities and that divorce will not occur in that marriage except for very serious matters. And I did not know that. But now I know it, and I'm telling you about it. If you go home and do a little bit of reading, you will find out that it's quite a popular movement in our nation. Please hear me. It doesn't have to be this covenant. I don't really care how you do it, as long as you get some of God's essential elements included in order to make the marriage, because it is a covenant. And to prove that, let's go to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. It doesn't matter whether you do it verbally with vows that are spoken and responded to or whether you do something in writing. The Lord doesn't tell us, so we don't require it to be either way. In this particular marriage, we're doing it in a written form. I want you to forget the young people that are going to be married and think about your own marriages. And if you're a young lady or a young man, this is the, if you're a young man, you want to find a young woman that wants to do these things. If you're a young woman, you want to prepare yourself to do these things toward a man. All the young people should realize how serious marriage is. We live in the perilous times of the last days when men would be traitors. And marrying a woman and then leaving her is being a traitor. Marrying a woman and committing adultery against her is being a traitor. When they try to reconcile, they won't keep the reconciliation, and so they're truce breakers. Both of those terms are in the list of sins of the perilous times of the last days. And one of the inconvenient things that God brings upon an unthankful nation is the fact that they're covenant breakers. Right. Romans chapter 1. We want this to show our seriousness about marriage because we are serious about it. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 14. The Lord has accused Judah of dealing treacherously. And the treachery was that they were not dealing fairly with their wives. And so the Lord says, Yet ye say, Wherefore? 
Here are these people trying to excuse themselves and hide. And here's the answer of the Lord. Because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth, against whom thou hast dealt treacherously, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Marriage is a covenant. A covenant is a promise. A covenant is a vow. A covenant is a formal commitment in order to make a marriage. And so this is what the Word of God says, and so we do it. Because we want to follow the Word of God in everything that we do, the Lord helping us. And if we're not, reveal it to us and we'll change. You find me a verse that says it needs to be verbal, you'll see how fast I can flick a bick and burn my own covenant. That's what I mean by that. If the Lord shows us something, we want to do it. This isn't binding on anyone except the two people that are going to sign it. Oh, I mean, John Doe and Mary Smith. I'm going to have the biggest temptation tonight. But in a few days, when there is a signing, you'll know what they're signing as you look at it. But look at it for yourselves, brethren, please. May the Lord Jesus Christ be exalted by a few minutes as we race through these points just to consider what the Bible does teach about the responsibilities of a wife. I gave you one verse, though, but haven't we learned another one recently? Job 31 and verse 1. Right. I made a covenant with mine eyes. Why then should I think upon a maid? There's another verse that teaches it's a covenant, and there are two more in the Bible, which I'd, I'll be happy to give you uh, later. Let's move into this covenant the first point that we make on that first page for Mary is that, by, that marriage was ordained by the great God. Marriage wasn't originated by men. They didn't invent marriage as a better idea. God ordained marriage. And so we have a paragraph to that effect. The second paragraph is that marriage is permanent, and it's grounded in the covenant, and it is not to be set asunder by man. Jesus said, What God hath joined together, let not man put asunder... And yet, we put a clause in there, giving the allowances that our Lord Jesus Christ and our brother Paul did, that for adultery and desertion, and our understanding of the principles of mercy and marriage, such sins that would severely violate the marriage. But for such serious violations, that marriage is to last as long as this life lasts for those two partners together. The third paragraph is that the Lord God did describe the necessary way to have a perfect marriage in the Bible. And he condemned the things that will ruin a marriage in the Bible. We have a perfect marriage manual in the Bible. And so we want to govern a marriage, and we want a marriage to be based in the Bible. The fourth paragraph, every woman should be thankful that God made her a woman, and she should find her fulfillment and happiness in the fact that God made her a woman. She shouldn't want to be a man. She should understand the glorious reasons and wisdom that God exercised in making her a woman. Paragraph 5 is that I hope that every woman that's married loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to put in here that our Lord Jesus Christ is Jehovah God. He's not even a cousin to Allah. Our Lord Jesus Christ is Jehovah God of the Bible. Very different. Very different. The sixth paragraph is that this woman, this Mary Brown, who is committing to a husband with this covenant, is under holy conviction to do it, to make this covenant 
in order to silence the reproaches of enemies and to preserve the word of God from blasphemy and to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And all of those are expressions from 1 Timothy chapter 5 and Titus chapter 2. And that is why we want to have holy marriages in this church, because it adorns the doctrine of God our Savior well. If we can have holy marriages in this church, happy marriages, lasting marriages, we do more evangelistically than we will probably do with our website. And so this woman, in the final paragraph there, the final whereas, admits that she has received her parents' blessing to marry John Doe, and though she knows him to be a sinner and subject to all the temptations of the flesh, she is going ahead and marrying him. Because that's what all women end up married to, isn't it? A man in the flesh. Not, not walking in the flesh, Lord willing, but a man who's got flesh and is subject to fleshly temptations. And she knows he's not perfect, and he's not going to always be perfectly loving, and he's not always going to be the perfect man that he ought to be. And so she knows that going into marriage. And so she must realize that as she signs this covenant. And so she takes an oath upon herself as the Lord liveth that she's going to keep these particular requirements of a Christian marriage. Understanding the seriousness of such vows. Remember the Bible told us that if you're going to vow, make sure you pay it. God said in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. So there's great seriousness in putting something like this together and never putting your name to it. Let's go to the first requirement. The first commitment of a Christian marriage. And that's to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to pursue holiness in the life. Because that is the chief purpose for each party's existence, each spouse's existence, and it's the basis for maximizing a happy marriage. This is the first rule. And do you know truly... You could take a pair of scissors and cut off everything below this rule. And if this rule was followed as I preach this morning and as I have the last few weeks, the marriage would be wonderful. Because if you are walking with the Lord Jesus Christ and filled with His Spirit, do you know what you will be? You will be, the fruit of the Spirit is, loving, joyful, peaceful, And on we go, long-suffering, gentle, meek. All of that will be there if rule one is followed. Why is it number one? Because it's by far the most important. The rest hardly belong on the page with it, some of the rest. But now the Lord's given us things that he wants to specify in the Bible, and so we specify them. Should we look up all the verses for number one? Should we look up any of them? Let me give you one. 2 Corinthians 7, 1, I did my best to preach this verse to you. Having therefore, brethren, oh boy, having therefore these promises, brethren, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And remember those promises were that God will be our Father and we will be His children. He'll receive us and come and dwell with us and us with Him. And how do we realize those promises? by cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. The body and spirit, thoughts and outward actions, we cleanse and we perfect holiness in the fear of God. That's a Bible verse. You can see it in there, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. The first most important part of a marriage is for the two parties to be committed 
to serving the Lord Jesus Christ with their whole hearts, the marriage will work. The marriage will be wonderful. Let them even be incompatible. What is compatibility? It's the ability to compromise. You want want me to show you the person with the greatest ability to compromise cheerfully? It's the one walking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the woman needs to commit in a marriage to maintain sufficient consecration to the Lord and knowledge of His will. Consecration means committed to the Lord Jesus Christ and knowing His will to resist any temptations by her husband to lead her into sin. I preach husband's authority, don't I? And I preach a wife's submission, don't I? However, there are verses in the Bible that tell us that a wife isn't supposed to submit without limitations. Let me read to you 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 6. Even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters ye are, as long as ye do well, and are not afraid with any amazement. That's be, now, the, the previous verses have said that a wife should be fearful and conduct herself in a fearful way of her husband. And that is how an unconverted husband can be won if a wife is truly submissive. However, the apostle gets to the end of his six verses describing the woman's responsibility, and he says she is not to be afraid with any amazement. Amazement is to be so overwhelmed by a situation you don't know what to do. And sometimes women get into situations where they're so overwhelmed by their husband's authority, presence, power, intimidation, whatever, that they don't know what to do. Uh Uh-uh. A Christian wife should enter a marriage knowing that there is a place where she is to say no. She is to have the same spirit that the apostles did when they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now, you haven't seen the man's side yet, but I'm going to tell you on the man's side, the man's going to give her that freedom. And he's going to expect it and hope for it. You know, if a wife doesn't help us spiritually, what help is she? It's true. It's true. I mean, I'm, I don't mean, I don't want anyone to be offended by that statement, but if we don't ever get spiritual encouragement and spiritual help from our wives, that's the most important part of our lives is to fear God and to walk with Him every day. And we want a wife that will help us do that in a very respectful way. And only at a time when we are headed into sin. We are not talking about matters of liberty. A wife's conscience does not have right or authority over a man's conscience in matters of liberty. She needs to educate her conscience. That's submission. And a husband, her husband ought to be teaching her, but I'm talking about any matters that pertain to the Word of God. A wife should have enough consecration to the Lord that though it's very tempting to want to go and do something with her husband that might be very attractive, that might involve a vacation, that might involve something special, she ought to have the conviction to say no. I can't spend that long on these points, but I hope you hear this. This is a godly marriage. The other example there is 1 Samuel 25. That's the woman Abigail. The Bible says she was a beautiful woman and a woman of good understanding. And she defied her husband when he was going to do something wicked. And the Lord killed her husband and blessed her to be David's wife. Let's go to number three. A woman should remember soberly and always that she was created for her husband and that he wasn't created for her. I would hope that you would remember 1 Corinthians 11.9, neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. 1 Corinthians 11.9. And a woman, if she would get up every day and when she looks up, and addresses her God, then she realizes that God has given her a place in this life 
and that's to be a help, meet for her husband. She'll be a happy and a fulfilled woman. Number four, to submit to him cheerfully as unto the Lord. That's Ephesians 5.22. And to be in subjection to him as the church is to Christ. That's Ephesians 5.23 through 24. You know, just as we obey Jesus Christ, which is with great seriousness and great submission, a woman ought to submit herself to her husband. And that's what the Bible teaches. And to obey him in all things, obviously we've already given the limitation, and sanctified common sense tells us that doesn't include sin, which I've already stated, without answering again. Number five, to reverence him from her heart in the offices God has given him. What are those offices? Husband, Lord, and head in three different places in the Bible. When I have the words there, regardless of his conduct, because a husband isn't perfect, because a a husband is too critical, because a husband isn't sensitive enough, because a husband doesn't give you enough for the groceries, or whatever he does that you find fault with, that does not justify you not keeping your responsibilities. This is the whole nature of authority. When the one in authority does not fulfill all of his responsibilities, that does not mean that those under authority are now excused from obeying him. All authority is imperfect. There's never been a perfect husband or a perfect father or a perfect government, pastor, master. There isn't such a thing. So there's always going to be the opportunity to find fault. But even if you can find fault, it does not excuse you from your responsibilities. That's the nature of authority. The best expression of that is in 1 Peter chapter 2 where it warns servants. The principle of authority. And the principle of authority is not to be in submission only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Being in submission to a good and gentle husband isn't much of submission at all. It's going along for a vacation. It's when your husband isn't being all that you wish he were or all that he should be in God's opinion that you still obey even when you suffer wrongfully. And every wife is asked to do some things sometimes that aren't necessarily the fairest way it could be requested. That's just part of two sinners living together. But one of them is in authority because God has put that one in authority. Number six, the Lord says that a meek and quiet spirit is of great value in his sight. And that's 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4. And a woman ought to adorn herself with that always and not be so conscious of her physical adorning. Number seven, a woman should live as a wife first and a mother second. And sisters, I've taught this before, but when you put your children above your husband, you are defrauding your husband. You were created for your husband, not for your children. Bearing children and having them is a short-time proposition of your life. Being with your husband is a lifelong proposition. Your children are going to come and go. But a husband is perpetual. And that order is God's order. He made marriage first, then there were children. And then children leave, and the marriage still exists. Number eight, a woman should be committed to love her children, be sober, discreet, chaste, a keeper at home, good, full of good works, and above reproach, that God's word be not blasphemed. And most of that comes from Titus chapter 2, which you women have heard in your ladies' meetings. Number nine, to follow and support him fully in the godly training of our children. Whose responsibility is it to train children in a marriage? It's the husband's. Fathers, 
Provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. You know, they can have promise keepers out there and million-man marches and other big rah-rah sessions to try to make men out of Americans. We have our church here, and this is the organization that God ordained. And if we will follow the Bible, all of you men will be men. And the men are responsible to train the children, not the wife. The wife can help in a subordinate role, but the main responsibility is the husband. Whether it gets done or you go through the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, it was father to sons. You go to the book of Proverbs, it's the wisdom of Solomon and his father David addressed to their sons, which in turn would commit it to their sons. Because that's how wisdom is perpetuated in families, by the father. And so the woman here, in point number nine, is agreeing to support her husband in this godly order of child training in the home. And there's lots of references there, and there could be lots more. Number ten, to love him tenderly, loyally, passionately, and erotically, as my nature and body were designed by Scripture's example and commandment, rather than by fickle feelings or circumstances. You know, sometimes we just don't feel very loving. But the Bible makes it a commandment. So a wife needs to love anyway. And Titus chapter 2 tells older women to teach younger women to love their husbands. And there's a whole book in the Bible addressed to the fact of a woman who truly loved her husband, and it's the book of Song of Solomon. And it includes all of that, the tenderness, the passion, the erotic nature of a woman that's married to her husband, and that's always and only in marriage. Number 11, to look and to think only upon him as the object of my love and lovemaking, and not to so look or think on any other man. And God's very serious about this because he made the woman for the man. She owes her loyalty to her husband. The man, strictly speaking, owes it to God. But the woman owes it to the man because she was created for him. He wasn't created for her. Some of you may not be aware of this. Some of you may. In Numbers chapter 5, in verses 11 through 31, you can see the reference there was a test of jealousy that God gave the nation of Israel. If a man came home from work and realized that he had a pretty wife and he'd been gone for a while, and he was jealous of his wife, he was just wondering if in his absence she had played around, he could take his wife down to the priest. He did not have to have any evidence whatsoever. This idea that a husband that's jealous is a bad thing, now jealousy can get out of control, but how do, how do we keep jealousy from getting out of control? By keeping all of God's commandments. A husband has great limitations on the way he treats his wife. There's nothing wrong with jealousy. God made a provision for it. God is as jealous as any husband has ever been. He will not share us with anyone. He wants all of our love all the time. Don't, ever, don't forget that. Let's think biblically. I don't care how many psychologists say that a husband that's jealous is a dangerous husband. Look at the word of God. Numbers chapter 5, husband could take his wife down to the priest. No evidence, nothing. Just a suspicion, just a fear. She had to drink a potion. The priest would make up a potion and she'd have to drink it. If she had been guilty, God would reveal it and she would rot in her secret parts. Right there on the spot. If she was innocent for having undergone that shame the Lord would bless her with immediate conception and she'd bear a child. And that's how God kept wives honest when their husbands were gone. That's the word of God. 
And so this woman, we have appointed here to remind her that in her thoughts and in her actions, they're to be only toward her husband. Fantasies are wrong. Romance novels are women's pornography. And you women who rail on men looking at naked women, you better make sure that you never read anything that looks like a romance novel that promotes a fantasy image of a man. For you to be visualizing being married to this unrealistic, impossible creature who's always nice. Forget it. Women have, that's women's pornography, romance novels. And I'm, I'm mainly, you know, I'm talking, have you been to the Walmart supermarket? And you, soap operas, what are they? Women are crazy about that stuff. And they fill their minds with images and they beat their husbands inside that their husbands don't measure up to this unrealistic image, even while those women are complaining about their husbands comparing their bodies to unrealistic images. Both are wrong, is what I'm saying. Both are wrong, and both are equally wrong. Number 12. To cheerfully and often love him sexually, both actively and passively, in those benevolent ways he desires and needs, without any defrauding, remembering the wisdom of my physical design and the holy instruction of Solomon. Hebrews 13.4 tells us marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. 1 Corinthians 7.2-5 teaches us that Spouses are not to defraud each other, and that the wife does not have the authority of her own body but the husband. We've been over those verses before. I just want you to see all the different aspects, and I hope that as we read this, all the women are thinking, today, I want to be this kind of wife. Don't think about the past, and don't think about years. Can you be this wife today? All of you can be this wife today. It's too much to think about more than a day or two. Can we think about a day or two? A day. Number 13, to forgive him fully and finally without bitterness for his failures and never recall events from the past at any time. I haven't heard very many amens from the husbands. Is that because you're afraid of what's coming next weekend? <laughs> what, brethren, what kind of marriages could we have if we would never bring up stuff from the past and hold bitterness? Great marriages. Wouldn't it be wonderful? Well, is there a verse that tells us that we ought to do that? Listen to these words, and I've taught them before. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking. That sounds like a marital fight or spat, doesn't it? Let me read that again. See if it sounds familiar. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Amen. What if two people did that? Let it all be put away, and we were tender-hearted and kind and forgiving one another. That's number 13. Number 14. To remember the highest standard of love is that of Paul and his definition of Christian charity, which Brother Newell quoted for us tonight. Those 15 phrases, if two people were to treat each other that way, what a marriage they would have. If they just went to one place in the scripture, if we set God first, 2 Corinthians 7, 1, and then went to this place on how to treat each other, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, what else do we need? Right. Right. 15 phrases are wonderful. 
This is the love and the definition of it. This covenant should be in a padded book on a bedside table for a couple that marries in the Lord. And they should look at it from time to time and remind themselves of the commitments that they have made to one another and to the Lord God before holy angels and many witnesses. Number 15. Ever ask your wife, husbands, or wives, have you ever been asked, what, what are you thinking? And you want to make it difficult for him to find out? You couldn't hold a job that way. You couldn't serve in the military that way. But you get away with it in marriage sometimes, but not a Christian marriage. If your husband wants to know what you're thinking, you tell him what you're thinking. If you say, well, I don't really want to say that because it's kind of negative, so I'm going to be a good wife and not say anything, you've just caused more harm than whatever you could say because you're rebelling. Amen. It's talk. Do you know what the great, the great lubricant is of marriage? It's communication. Amen. It's communication. To communicate openly and freely without compulsion at all times and regarding all matters. Look at the verse I have there. Amos 3.3 3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? And the only way you can find that agreement if two souls bear Open up and talk. Jesus said, I've called you servants to this point, but now I'm calling you friends because I'm telling you everything that I'm going to do of my, that my Father has given me to do. That's John chapter 13. Friendship, true companionship, is telling all, being open. That's when you truly love is when you're willing to give your soul. Might you, might you say something sometime and then have your husband step on it? Yes. That's the risk of love when you're loving a sinner. But open up and talk. And oh, what a... You go read any book on marital counseling and find out where communication ranks as the problems in marriage. And it's way up there at the top. It's usually number one. Communication. They don't talk. They don't understand each other. He doesn't know her. She doesn't know him. It's true. Number 16. To so conduct myself, this is the woman speaking, with virtue and grace, as his representative in public, that honor will accrue to him. That's a woman that crowns her husband. What does the Bible say in Proverbs chapter 31 of the occupation of the virtuous woman's husband? He sits in the gate of the city. He was one of the elders in the city where she conducted herself. Number 17, to help him financially by not complaining, using funds frugally, or working a job he approves in order to help the family financially. You know, Proverbs chapter 31 starts out with the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her. A husband wants to be able to give his checkbook or give a credit card, be able to go to work, be able not to ask about it all the time, and to have it well taken care of because she wouldn't overspend and she would be frugal when there's, a financial, when there's financial pressure on the marriage. Number 18, to honor his parents and family as my own and to encourage him in his duties to his family. Sometimes there's a temptation when two people get married to separate the relationship with their parents more than it ought to be separated. And both parties ought to be encouraging one another to love and honor their parents. Let me see if I have the reference here. Yes, I do. Exodus 18, 1 through 12. 
if you go to that passage, and we're not going to right now, it's about Jethro, Jethro when he came to visit Moses in Israel. It is a special passage of 12 verses describing the honor that Moses gave his father-in-law. And he gathered all the elders of Israel and had a great feast, and they all honored his father-in-law. It's a very special 12 verses about a father-in-law, in-law relationships, which there are so many jokes about, (coughs) but we shouldn't joke about it. When you marry, you're getting another family. You're not marrying just a person, you're marrying another family. Number 19, to remember marriage is permanent, so reconciliation and renewal are superior to separation or divorce by the power of Christ. And you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, and it says, Let not the wife leave her husband, but and if she leaves him, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. Reconciliation is God's order, not divorce and remarriage, except for those significant sins that God allows exceptions for. Number 20, to use the Lord's processes for offenses between us rather than the flesh's revenge and the world's escapes. You know, the flesh's revenge is, well, he's not treating me right, so I'm going to deprive her. Isn't that, there's two people, I thought we weren't, we taught at a very young age that it takes two to fight. And if one's fighting, if the other wouldn't, the fight would end. And that's what the Bible teaches us. To use the Lord's processes. And I, you know my, one of my favorite verses is Proverbs 19, 11. What is that verse? <laughs> the discretion of a man deferreth his anger. And it is his glory to pass over a transgression. A glorious woman is one that passes over transgressions. And a glorious man is one that passes over transgressions. Matthew chapter 18 in there which I've, I don't know if it's ever been used in a marriage or not, but Matthew 18 is there for a marriage. And see, if you're thinking to yourself right now, well, I don't know if I could do that to involve anyone else in, my, in any marriage problems that I had. Well, when you see the man's side of a Christian marriage, the man gives his wife that liberty that if she must, she should use outside help to help the marriage. The, the Lord defends women and men, from bad marriages. The church should be able to judge in all such matters of comp- that, of, between people that are short of sin, and that are short of outward sin, but are offenses and are causing havoc in a marriage. The church should be able to judge in matters like that, and it's only because of reluctance and, and fear that that isn't used, but that is a Bible method. The Lord's processes are peacemakers anyway. James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality. That's the wisdom from above in James three seventeen. Number 21, to remember that his conduct, good or bad, does not justify my violation or neglect of these holy obligations to the Lord, because this is a covenant with the Lord that I am going to be this, remember at the beginning it said, I'm going to be this kind of wife according to what the Holy Scriptures taught. I am going to love my husband this way. I'm going to submit to him this way because no husband is going to live up to his, no husband is going to be perfect. No wife is going to be perfect. And we have a mirror image of this particular point on the husband's side because it is so much in our nature to excuse our disobedience because our spouse is disobeying. 
And that is not an excuse. Number 22, to cheerfully submit to inquiries by my parents, his parents, our pastor, and scriptural inquiries by my sisters in Christ regarding our marriage. And I wish that we all encouraged and provoked one another. This isn't to pry. You know, we don't have to pry. We can do a whole lot of good if we would just encourage one another to love our spouses better. We don't, we don't do enough of that. We could do more of that. And as a true family, in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should be able to do that. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. I would hope that my sons, as they marry, are able to provoke one another to be better husbands. And I believe we can do that as brothers in Christ also in this assembly. Brethren, the Bible says that marriage is a covenant. God does not tell us how we have to do it. It can be done verbally very simply. It can be done in a written format like this. It can be done in a different written format. But marriage is a covenant. It's a commitment before God of how you're going to treat your spouse. And that's what makes the marriage. The commitment that from this day forward, I'm going to treat this person as my husband or this person as my wife. And we establish that with a covenant. May the Lord Jesus Christ be honored by our desire to have holy marriages. And may we live out those holy marriages to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May the Lord bless the review of this covenant.